0: We pray with me? Lord, we're privileged to have experienced your great grace. Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that you'll be honored as we look to it. As we look even to this well-known passage, even a passage that uh, over the course of time in various ministries and various settings of our church, we have looked at together. Lord, it's a Wonderful passage, and we thank you for writing it. We thank you for the explanation that is here. We thank you for, ultimately, grace, as we look at it this morning, and grace according to your word, and that it's salvation by grace and nothing to do with us. Salvation by grace, and we're thankful for it. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we continue our sermon series through the five solas of the Reformation. Last week we looked at sola scriptura, which is just a fancy Latin way for saying scripture alone. Uh, Again, last week this is what we considered and what I attempted to show you was that even in comparison to the Catholic Church 500 years ago during the Reformation and even right now, we want to know... Where does Scripture stand? right? That, that's a question that we considered In regard to everything else that was going on, in regard to the Catholic Church. And let me also insert this. That this series is not a uh, just for me to take pot shots at the Catholic Church. As many pot shots as I can get in, I'm just going to give. Yet, yeah, well, I want to show you fundamental disagreements, gospel disagreements. Disagreements where we say... Yes, we cannot fellowship in a church atmosphere. We cannot fellowship in a worship atmosphere. We cannot fellowship even as church family in that sense. We can certainly fellowship in a way that we bring these truths to them. We, we continue our own protesting, our own personal protesting. We, we say, no, we, we stand on scripture alone. We stand on grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, all of those things. So this is certainly not pot shot sermons. This is just showing you simply the fundamental disagreements as we even celebrate now 500 years to the month and almost to the day in a few days. The differences and what Martin Luther did when he nailed those 95 theses to that door and how significant that was, which we looked at in depth last week. So when you have conversations with your Catholic friends, with your Catholic family, they'll certainly say, well, we hold to Scripture, we have, we have a Bible. We believe what the Bible says, but they do not hold to Scripture alone. That Scripture is the final source of, of authority. That Scripture is the final source of what we look to in regard to faith and practice. And so what they would also look to are things like uh, tradition and things like the word of the Pope and so on that we looked at last week. And they even add certain books to the Bible. But they would certainly say, if you were talking to them, well, of course I affirm Scripture. If you continue a conversation with uh, somebody who you know who is Catholic, they would certainly say, well, of course we believe in grace. They would certainly say, yes, we we certainly believe in grace. And they have a certain understanding of what they believe grace to be. But continuing on, they would certainly say, well, we we believe in faith. And so these five solas, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, they would say, we believe in all of those things. The problem is with that word alone, that it's Scripture alone alone That's the final source. That it's grace alone that saves you. That it's faith alone through which His grace comes. And so it wasn't really until the Reformers began this work about 500 years ago that these truths then again came to the forefront of Christendom. Where it was these five solas, these short statements that became defining for Protestant churches over the next several hundred years, and even for our own church. That these are something that define us. Even in comparison to Catholic churches and even other churches. Where we'd say these five things, these are just crystal clear Bible things that we would hold to and be clear on. So scripture alone, it's our final authority. Grace alone, we are saved by grace and grace alone. Faith alone, we're not saved by our good works. We're saved by faith. Christ alone, we are saved by being brought into Christ and then God's glory alone. So all of this climaxes to the glory of God, which we'll look at in a few weeks, that it's solely deo gloria, to the glory of God and to God alone. But think with me this morning about grace. I've been considering this over the week, and even in my own thoughts as I've been trying to prepare for this sermon, a thought occurred to me a few days ago, and I'm just trying to fathom something of grace. Have you ever just stopped and tried to meditate on that? To to think upon such a big and broad, wonderful truth like grace, and just dwell on it for a few minutes? I met with Jeff Sherman this week, and it's like, I just don't know where to go. Like, I think of grace. I don't know where to go. Like, I don't even know how to plummet. I, knowing that I can't Plummet. It's like a, an ocean at the Mariana Trench that's just thousands and thousands and thousands feet deep. You'll never get to the bottom of it. And it's so hard to even know where to begin. But have you considered something of grace lately? I can think of the song that we used to sing when I was young in the church that we grew up. You get, anybody know? Who, who knows the song, Wonderful Grace of Jesus? Wonderful Grace of Jesus. About ten of you? Unbelievable. It's kind of a bouncy song. For the seriousness of the words. It's kind of bouncy. It's kind of one of those you can kind of do this too. But it emphasizes such serious truths. Such incredible depth is here. But even considering the grace. The first words. Wonderful grace of Jesus. Greater than all my sin. And then it presents the problem that I just said I had this week. It says wonderful grace of Jesus. Greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? How is my tongue to describe something that is indescribable? The song highlights really the magnitude of God's grace. That it's great, wonderful grace of Jesus. Where do I even begin talking about this grace? It goes on in the refrain, wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus. It's deeper than a mighty rolling sea, higher than a mountain sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me. Ephesians 2.7, which is within our passage this morning, says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The biggest buck in Maine, it's hunting season. The biggest buck in Maine is measurable. And I heard of one yesterday, 256 pounds, 15 points. Wow, it's a monster. But you can measure it. The biggest bank account in the world, Bill Gates, I don't know, whoever is the richest, Warren Buffett, whoever it is. You can measure that bank account. The biggest state. The the biggest country, the the world itself, all of it is measurable. We know how many square feet there are in the world. Yet the riches of God in Christ is immeasurable. This cannot be measured. You don't know of anything in your life that cannot be measured. There's nothing in your life that cannot be weighed. There's nothing in your life that you cannot take a tape measure to and measure it out. Everything is measurable. But the grace of God is not. This is something that the song Wonderful Grace of Jesus makes clear within its verse and its chorus. And if you, again, if you know the tune, it's almost shocking because it's so bouncy because it's dealing with such weighty things. Wonderful Grace of Jesus... Greater than all my sin. So it begins to contrast, like our text does, it begins to contrast his magnificent grace in comparison to your great sin. So, wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. What is the only other thing that is immeasurable in your life? In some ways, your sin. Your sin is so great. My sin is so great, but the wonderful grace of Jesus is greater than all my sin. It goes on, talks about the scope of our transgressions, how great that scope would be. It talks about our sin and our shame. talks about our chains. Maybe most powerfully, this line where it comes out of the gate, I think in the third verse, wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most defiled. And so if we had sung that song, we would all be thinking about ourselves, hopefully, in that moment and not the person next to us. Yeah, the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches this really defiled person, my spouse or my kid or whatever it is, right? Wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most defiled, Me. Me. It has reached me. And this is really where we begin our passage this morning. We don't get to the wonderful grace of Jesus until we start reflecting upon me and you and the sin that makes up so much of who we are and have been. We think of the word depravity. You see depravity everywhere, don't you? You see depravity in your workplace. You see depravity... In the news, one author said this, when we speak of man's depravity, we mean man's natural condition apart from any grace exerted by God to restrain and transform a man. So you think of depravity, this is the person, a depraved person, this is somebody who has not experienced something of the grace of Christ. This is somebody who has not experienced something of the grace of God within their life. Any exertion on God's part, To save or to extend grace. It's hard to get a sense of the magnitude of God's grace. If you don't understand the magnitude of your own sin. If you understand nothing of your own sin. And who you are apart from Christ. You'll never know anything about grace. You'll never be able to talk and sing about how great the grace of God is. If you don't understand how great your own sin is. Because the truth is, what Robbie Zacharias has said is very true. In regard to you and in regard to me, in regard to the salvation that has been presented to us, what he says is so true. Jesus does not offer to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. He doesn't offer to make you good, He offers to take you from death to life that is the difference it is not as though you're on a hospital bed and you just kind of have the flu when Jesus comes like a spiritual flu when Jesus comes and he's a spiritual doctor and he just kind of doctors you up and makes you a little better than you already were no it is Lazarus come forth it is Brandon come forth it is you come forth out of your grave I am making you come alive it is death to life not not feeling so good To now I'm better. It is not that. Jesus does not offer to make bad people good. But to make dead people alive. It is not about coming and cleaning you up a little bit. Jesus didn't come to just kind of get you over the hump in your life. That oh I just kind of ran into a speed bump. And I need Jesus to help me. No. And so we could not even move spiritually speaking. If it weren't for the grace of God. And so this passage easily blocks out into a couple blocks. The first one is who we were and then who we are now. So who were we? Why don't you look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And now look at verse 3. At the end of verse 3. And were by nature... Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so a couple questions need to be answered as we come to this text. When did this depravity hit us? And what was the cause? When did we become the depraved directors that we are? And what was the cause of this Depravity. So, like a detective coming to the scene, right? When a, when a detective comes up to the scene, I assume he wants to know a couple of things. When there's a dead person on the ground, he wants to know what was the time of death, and he wants to know what caused the death, right? So, whether it was gunshot, whether it was stabbing, whatever it was, what was the time of death, and what was the cause of death for this person? And when we look at the Bible. The time of our spiritual death and the time of and the cause of our spiritual death, what was it? And the answer is pretty simple. We even consider one verse with Psalm fifty-one. The time of spiritual death is the time of physical life. The time for all of us of our spiritual death was the time of our physical life, conception. The psalmist says in Psalm fifty-one, verse five: "Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity." And in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that his mother was living in sin. He wasn't saying that his mother was immoral or living an adulterous lifestyle. He was saying that naturally he was conceived in sin. Your story, my story, beginning at conception. It is beginning in the same place that Charles Dickens' tale, A Christmas Carol, begins. Marley was dead to begin with. Brandon was dead to begin with. This is the result of what we call original sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so your father, Adam, functioned as your federal head in the garden. That just as Adam acted and reacted in the garden so would you have done. He is acting on your behalf as though he is right above you in doing so. As though a father making a choice for his child, so has Adam acted on our behalf. Romans chapter 7 verse 18, this is Paul's testimony of himself. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. This is the apostle Paul. This is the guy who was spirit-led to write so many books of the Bible. This is the man who was the greatest evangelist that the world has ever seen. And Paul says in Romans 7, I know that nothing good dwells within my flesh. There's nothing good within me. And not many people are saying that these, these days. Not many people are talking about their sin. Because it's within us that we suppose is the inherent goodness, right? We all we kind of have that assumption. And we're told that. That we have inherent goodness. And that all I need to live a happy life, all I need to have joy in these days, is to find it within myself. And once I find my true self, then I'll find true happiness. That is not the case. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, why don't you turn over a page in your Bible to Ephesians 4. Look at these verses with me. Ephesians 4 verse 17 Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Because of what? The ignorance that is in them. It's due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and had given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So, the Gentile or the, the unconverted one, they're alienated from God. They're ignorant in their heart in regard to God. It's due to the hardness of their hearts, the, the callous. The, it's hard as stone, as other passages have put it within the Old Testament and New. Or Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, this famous verse The heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? All of these verses proving the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, born right out of the gate, conceived in sin. And then on and on again. We've talked about this before, that we don't have to teach our children how to sin. It just comes so naturally. And so within the natural man, he cannot do anything pleasing to the Lord. That's backed up by 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so a natural man in and of himself with a sick heart, dead in his trespasses and sins, all of these things coming together, conceived in sin, the natural man, that guy, he cannot understand the things of God. He cannot. And so the first thing we see is that in our natural state, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The second thing that our text tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, why don't you look at the second part of verse 2 in Ephesians 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of this world. And so this is, this is the course. Right out of the gate, as, as, as somebody dead in the trespasses and sins, you're going to walk in the way of the world. This is confirmed in James chapter 4 where he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's what we have done. We're born into the world and immediately we make friends with the world. We love the world. We want to accumulate the things of the world. We want to walk in the, 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 uh, the ladder and so forth of, of, of our businesses and corporations. We want to do everything that we can in regard to the world to attain. To lay up our treasures here on earth. That's our goal. The next thing he says, which might be even more shocking in Ephesians 2 verse 2. Is he says that we are following The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at now at work, and the sons of disobedience. And so who is this prince of the power of the air? This is Satan. So not only are you dead in your sins, he's kind of stacking it up, isn't he? Dead in your sins, following the ways of the world. You're falling, if you're apart from Christ, after Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says, And even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So Satan's active work is to keep people in the dark, to keep people blind to the light of the gospel. If he can keep them blind to the light of the gospel, the gospel doesn't come in. If he can avert them and keep them in love with the world and keep them dead in the trespasses and sins, if he can keep them in that spot, that is success for him. Verse 3. So we're dead in our sins. We follow after the world. We follow after Satan, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, Do we not see this in our world today? Is this not the modus operandi of the world? It's my passions. It's what I want to do. It's where I want to go. It's who I want to sleep with. It's everything about me. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I think of the last verse, it says it a couple times in the end of Judges, the book of Judges, early on. This is thousands of years ago. And we see so much within that book of Israel and how they're failing. And you think of one of the main characters within that book in Judges 13 to 16 was Samson. And this great man of great strength who judged Israel for 20 years. But at the end of that book, what does it say? Everyone did what was right in their eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that is the testimony of our world today. That everybody is simply doing what is right in their own eyes. The person who is in the flesh, they cannot please God. They want to please themselves. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12, just a couple verses down from our text says, Remember That you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant promise, having no hope without God in the world. If this was true of you, and it was, if you are a believer now, it was true of you. If you are not a believer now, it is true of you right now. But he says in verse 12, to remember. Remember this. Remember that you were separated from Christ. Remember that you were alienated. Remember that you were a stranger and you had no hope. There was nothing that you could do. There was nothing that you could do in and of yourself to save yourself. This is something that we must remember and we have to reflect upon this. Again, remembering and realizing the greatness of our own sin in comparison to what we'll get to in a moment, I'm talking about a much more happier subject in regard to the grace of God that is much greater and more wonderful. But we have to sit and remember and think about the fact that we were once strangers and alienated to God. This is something that should give us perspective. Zombie movies and TV shows have been popular for some time now, and I suppose in a couple days you'll probably have some kids knock on your door and they'll look like zombies. And I hope you don't believe in zombies. But spiritually speaking, the walking dead are everywhere. Those who are walking around, living and breathing, dead in their trespasses and sins. A slave to the world. Following after the prince of the power of the air, following and pursuing their own passions. And this is who you once were. And if it weren't for the grace of God, it would still be with you. And so this is what I want to do as we continue to reflect on this and to remember the fact that this is who we were. I want to realize afresh this morning that apart from grace, it simply would have never happened to remember the fact that we were without hope at one point, but now. Because of grace, we are a child of God. If God didn't do what he did, and what we're going to look at next, you would still be Ephesians 2, 1-3. You would still be in sin. Still be dead. And it's only the grace of God that can make your friends and family come to life, just like it was the grace of God that made you come to life But what we have to understand about grace is what it is, but also how we get it. How do you get God's grace? Grace is probably better defined or translated in a Bible as favor. This is God's unmerited favor to us. You can't be good enough to get it. You can't be holy enough to get it. You can't be smart enough to get it. You can't pull your bootstraps up around your shoulders and work harder in order to get it. You cannot do anything at all to attain God's grace. That's simply not how favor works. That's simply not how grace works. One author said this, Grace is in no sense contingent upon a condition that we meet. If that were the case, it would no longer be grace. Grace. It is not by meeting a condition that we receive God's grace. It is by God's grace that we meet His condition. It is by God's grace and grace alone that we meet the requirements, the condition. We cannot do this in and of ourselves. And so look in verse 5. Look what he says there in verse 5. Or look at verse 4 first, then we'll go into verse 5. So, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which, which He had for us, loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by what you have been saved? Go ahead. By grace grace, you have been saved. So you see the contrast. even mentions being dead in trespasses and sins. The contrast is you were dead to now you have been made alive together with Christ by grace. So you're not dead, you're alive. Does anybody here have any better news than that? Any of you want to stand up and say, i got better news than that? None of you have better news than what I'm telling you right now. That you were once dead and now you are alive. We all fundamentally have the same exact testimony. I know some people, you know, they had maybe grown up in the church and they had never really done all that much wrong. wrong. They never went weekend after weekend on benders. They never uh, were shooting, shooting up on heroin or whatever else. And they hear somebody who has that testimony and they're like, wow, what a testimony. But we all had the same starting point, no matter what. We were all sinners. And we've all, if you trust in Christ, you've been made alive. Sometimes you hear of situations where there's apparently a real life person who died for a couple of hours, right? Like there's no heartbeat, there's no pulse, there's nothing. And then all of a sudden, they come back to life. And we hear those stories, and if you're like me, you probably question those stories. But when we are gloriously saved by grace, that is our testimony. Dead to life. Spiritually dead, year after year after year after year. No spiritual impulse, no spiritual heartbeat. And then all of a sudden, like on a hospital monitor, and God makes you come alive. Look at verse 6. And raised us up with him. You've been raised to spiritual life. You've been raised to walk in newness of like life, like Paul says over in Romans chapter six, to walk in newness of life. So you don't live like a dead man or a dead woman. You're not a walking spiritual zombie. You've been raised. You've been given life. So the effect of being made alive, being raised, is being able to walk in newness of life. And so by the grace of God, you don't have to live the way that you used to live. And he goes on in verse 6 and says, And seated us with him in the heavenly places. We looked at this over in Colossians, in the beginning of Colossians in chapter 3, where it says to set our mind on the things above, and we... Looked at that for a time and then brought it over to Ephesians chapter 2, where he says that we have been raised and seated with him in the heavenlies. And so we must put our minds there because we are already somewhere, in some way, in some fashion, we are already seated in that place. But then in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is being lavished. In grace. It's not just this. Like a candy dispenser. You drop your 25 cents in. Twist it. And something comes out. This is lavish. Poured out upon us. Kind of grace. People who lavish. In the riches of this earthly kingdom. Have nothing in comparison to those. Who have been lavished by the grace of the heavenly kingdom. Just in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So, you were dead, following after Satan, following after the passions, following after all of that, the world, all of that. But now who are you? You are alive by grace. You are raised by grace. You are seated by grace. You are lavished by grace. By grace, and finally you are created by grace in Christ. For where is workmanship, verse ten? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Second Corinthians five seventeen says, Therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation. All the old has passed away, behold the new has come. If you are in Christ by grace, you are created. In him. Brothers and sisters, this is who you were and now who you are. You were utterly dead and incapable and depraved, but now, as a result of grace, you are alive. You were not saved because it would have been unjust for God not to save you. You were not saved because of inherent goodness. You were not saved because you deserved it in some way. You were not saved because you attained a spiritual level that other people could not. You were saved by the sheer, undeserved, unmatched divine grace of God extended to you. Sometimes you hear the analogy, and I heard this analogy all my life. It's as though you're in an ocean, and you're starting to drown, and you're drowning, and somebody throws you a life preserver. And all you have to do is reach out and grab that life preserver. That's not the analogy at all. Much better. The coast guard comes. You're floating in the water. And you have been for years. You're grabbed and somehow brought to life. That's the analogy. It's not dependent on you grabbing some life preserver. It's about God coming and breathing life into you. And so we've been considering a little bit, as we think about the Protestant, hopefully biblical understanding of grace, in comparison to what uh, those in Catholic theology have understood. And stick with me for a moment while I try to explain a little bit of the differences of how they would understand grace. They see grace as a couple of different things. And this is from their own, one of their own websites. The church teaches that there is a difference between actual grace and sanctifying grace. An easy way to understand actual grace is to remember that it enables us to act. It is a strength that God gives to act according to his will. Sanctifying grace is a state in which God allows us to share in his life and love. When we speak of being in the state of grace, we mean the state of sanctifying grace. Now listen to this. If you missed all that, that's fine. But get this. This grace comes to us first in baptism and then in the other sacraments. So you'll never remember that quotation. But remember that last line. Grace comes to us in baptism and then in the other sacraments. So it's your responsibility to make sure that little Jimmy has been baptized, that little Jimmy is confirmed, that he begins to go to uh, confession, that he begins to be a part of the church, and on and on and on, and the grace will come as you participate in the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. Church. So on the Protestant side, and the position of the reformers 500 years ago, God does the work, God looks upon you with favor, God does the saving, it's not works which you have been been doing, it's according to his grace. On the Catholic side, you do the work, then God may look upon you with favor, and you link arms with God as it were, and you hope for the best in terms of your Salvation, you may have to, and I read on that website, Catholic.com, that you might have to go to purgatory for a time of cleansing or purging or whatever they refer to it as. And so then, hopefully, you will attain heaven. And so instead of God being the one to look at you with favor, you seek his favor by participating in the sacraments. And then grace is extended through those seven sacraments. And what these sacraments do is give you an extra push. They give you an extra shove, they just give you an extra uh, shot in the arm to get down the road spiritually, and it all begins with baptism. So you have baptism, you have confirmation, you have penance, you have the communion, the Holy Eucharist, you have matrimony, marrying another Catholic within, within the Catholic Church, and that is an extra push of grace. The sixth is the anointing of the sick, where grace is given to those who are about to Or who are sick or about to die. And then the seventh is holy orders, which is a special grace or a grace for those uh, who are priests or bishops within the church. And so when you think of the grace as you see it in Ephesians 2 and other places in the Bible, and you see Catholic theology and how they build their argument and how they hold to grace, can you understand why the reformers would say, it's not that, it's grace alone. It's not you. It's grace alone. And so the Catholic Church had and still has a fundamental misunderstanding of the grace of God. As though it's something to be grasped. As though it's uh, uh, that shot in the arm or that push down the road. So you want more of God's grace? Get confirmed. You want more? Marry a Catholic. You want more? Make sure that you participate in communion. You want more? Make sure that when you're sick you get anointed. And the reformers step back from that. And they say, hang on a second. The grace of God is not something that can be worked for. The grace of God is something that you do not work in cooperation with in the, in the sense of being saved, but that it is the unmerited favor of God. One author said, the grace of God cannot be transacted like a commodity. It cannot be handed like an object. It cannot be bought or sold, worked for or earned. Instead, it must be freely given by God himself. So yes, the Catholic Church would certainly say that you need to be saved by grace. The key point for all of this to understand is that they do not believe in salvation by grace alone. Not God's favor alone. And friends, we're in a period of unprecedented grace. We are participants in what we call the New Covenant. The new covenant that was promised in the Old Testament. And we are now, if you will have a relationship with God, you have that relationship by way of covenant. By the new covenant. And some have termed this and called this the covenant of grace. This is a gracious covenant. Whereby the gospel has gone forward to the nations. And that people are being saved in droves all over the world and brought into the family of God. You consider even the book of Ephesians that we've been looking at this morning. It is bookended with God's grace. Verse one, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Grace to you. And then in one of the last verses, he said, or in the last verse, he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. From the beginning of the book to the end of the book to what we looked at, basically in between, in the middle of the book, it's all about the grace of God. Let me give you two closing applications. First... The grace of God in your life is assuring. Because if you didn't save yourself, and it was by grace, then that means you can't lose it. That nobody is able to pluck you out of the Father's hand. That once saved, always saved, is often what is said. And that is true. That if you have been saved by God, you cannot pluck yourself, you cannot push yourself out of the Father's hand. It cannot... Happen, And so there's great assurance because you know what, if we could gain our salvation, if we could have it within ourselves to save ourselves, then what? We would be afraid that somehow by ourselves we'd be able to lose it. But because of what he has done, we cannot lose it. He has saved us. And so the grace of God is assuring. But then not only is the grace of God for your salvation, that you have been saved by grace, but the grace of God is enabling that God's grace saves you and keeps you, but it also, it enables good works. It enables you to live a holy life. You cannot live a holy and righteous life without the grace of God. You cannot do and obey the requirements within God's word without God's grace. You can't obey without God's grace. And so the grace of God is assuring and the grace of God is enabling. Friends, have you tasted something of the grace of God? Do you believe in the grace of God? Has it saved you? Have you trusted in the message of the gospel? That by the grace of God, Jesus was sent, he lived perfectly, he died, he rose again to give you victory over sin and death? Have you tasted that? Are you alive this morning? Is this a graveyard or is this a place where we can celebrate? Is this a valley of dry bones? Or has the spirit breathed life into you? It's an important question to answer. Are these songs of grace ones that you relish? Can you sing wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most defiled by its transforming power, making me God's dear child? And so remember who you were apart from grace. Remember now, relish in now who you are as a result of grace. And may we continue on together as God's children in grace. Let's pray. Lord, you are very good, and we are so thankful for the grace that we have in you. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, but it is a wonderful gift, and we thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, there's only one song we could finish this morning with. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Will you stand with me?